Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comic. I'm Eamon Clark, and my very special guest is a writer who started out writing for Crisis and 2000 AD before going on to write uh, Hellblazer, The Demon, The Punisher, and to create Preacher, The Boys, Hitman, and many, many more. It's a very warm book club. Welcome to Garth Ennis. Garth, welcome to the book club. Thank you, Eamon. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you, and thanks to Paul Trimble for putting us in touch and arranging this interview. Um, Garth, we're going to be talking about Johnny Red in a moment, but I wanted to start, as always, by asking you about your earliest memories of reading comics, and in particular, yeah. how you discovered Battle in 2000 AD. Yeah, well, uh, I I think I began with the Beano, <laughs> right. and then my first let's say, proper comic, would have been 2000 AD, not long after it started, in um, the first half of 77. And then Battle about a year after that. And I stuck with those two really for, well, in Battle's case, for the duration for 2000 AD for a good long while after that. Right. And of course... Uh, I know from you know reading your introduction and so on that Johnny Red was one of your favourite strips uh, in Battle Comic at that time. Um, those peak years of Johnny Red, I think. Yeah, very much so. Um, I, I think when I started reading it, the strip had been running for about a year, maybe a year and a half. It was uh, it was in the latter stages of um, the Colhoun run before John Cooper took over. And uh, yeah, it, it got a lock on my imagination that's, uh, that's really held fast ever since. Um, it, I, I'm well aware that there are, there are better written strips in battle. I mean, I can recognize that page for page, uh, Darkies Mob and HMS Nightshade are, are better written strips. I can also recognize that Charlie's War is simply the best thing in the whole the whole comic and the entire history of the comic. But there's the best and then there's your favorites and they don't always coincide. There's the ones that get you in the head, but then there's the ones that get you in the heart. And I think that's Johnny Red for me um, in the same way that uh, I'm well aware there are better written strips in, two, in 2080s history than Robo Hunter, but it's always going to be my favorite. Right. Because it, it gets me in the heart. Well, let's turn to the book, because I've got the hard copy of Johnny Red, Falcon's First Flight, a Titan hardback from 2011, which collects about the first year of Johnny Red's stories, which began in Battle Issue 100 in January 1977. Um, right. Written by Tom Tully. You've mentioned the artwork is by Joe Calhoun, edited mm -hmm. Dave Hunt. Um Later on, we'll get John Cooper and Carlos Pino doing artwork. Uh, right. So for anybody who hasn't got this trade um, or gone back to read those battle issues, tell us the setup of Johnny Red. Can you tell us about it? Sure. Johnny Red is the story of a young 19-year-old uh, fighter pilot, Johnny Redburn, who gets kicked out of the Royal Air Force halfway through his training for thumping an officer. He makes his way to Russia. And uh, he ends up flying with and eventually commanding a Russian fighter bomber squadron called Falcon Squadron. And he really spends the entire war on the Russian front from uh, late 41 through to the, the end of the war in Europe, um, fighting the Germans, uh, watching his comrades struggle and die alongside him, and also constantly running a file of the Russian secret police. So it's very much the enemy to the front and behind. It's one of those stories. There's a chap Kraskin in this volume who's like always yeah. the thorn in his side, isn't he? Yes, he's a he's an NKVD commissar. The NKVD were really just forerunners of the KGB. And they were there to encourage, strongly encourage the pilots and the soldiers to do their duty, whether they liked it or not. So it, it brought a political element to uh, to every military unit that was not always welcome. These guys really had the power of life and death over the men they were there to to advise, uh, advise in quotes, um, and they could really 
sometimes quite literally forced them into action at the barrel of a gun. That was more often what happened among the infantry, but there was a similar influence on air crew, on the pilots. Uh, Johnny, of course, as a foreign national who shouldn't really be there, is, is an object of suspicion, not just for Kraskin, but for a succession of evil commissars who will plague our hero throughout the strip's history. Kraskin's just the, the first and among the nastiest. I, as I recall, he starts to go, Johnny's constant evasion of his authority eventually drives him a little bit insane. Uh, and uh, pretty soon he's all the way over the edge. But he was just one of a number of uh, Russian authority figures that Johnny had to deal with, because, again, Johnny shouldn't really have been there. And you, you've mentioned, as you say, that it's um, the story of ordinary ordinary men and women who are stuck between the enemy and the, the authorities above them or behind them. Um, you You say he shouldn't really be there. I just want to mention the extraordinary... Uh, sort of episode that brings Johnny Red to Russia, which is based on the true experiences of a flying officer, Arthur Burr, which I'm indebted to Jeremy Briggs, who also mm. wrote um, an introductory piece for this volume, was like you wrote one as well. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, this idea of a hurricane being catapulted off a ship um, with no way of getting it back on the ship after it's done, you know, it's flown its mission is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, and yet at the time, it was simply accepted as a stopgap by the British. Um, it at that point in the war, they had too much to do and not enough to do it with. They were short of aircraft carriers to protect uh, merchant shipping convoys. They came up with the idea of the uh, catapult aircraft merchantman where a hurricane fighter is mounted on, on a rocket rail on the bows of a ship. Um, when the enemy show up, when enemy aircraft attack, the, uh, the hurricane is rocketed off. The pilot will then hopefully drive away the enemy aircraft. And at that point, he has a problem because he's running out of fuel. And if he's not in sight of land, if he's maybe in the middle of the Arctic Ocean or the Atlantic... Uh, or one of the other convoy routes, uh, he then has to either bail out of the aircraft or ditch it in the water and hope that one of the convoy escorts can pick him up. This is, if you think about it, quite a clever way of getting Johnny to Russia because after he gets kicked out of the RAF, he gets a job really as a galley hand on the ship, uh, what's called the CAM ship, as I say, the, the catapult aircraft merchantman ship. Uh, that's on its way to Russia as part of a, a convoy's escort. So the uh, the ship is bombed. The Hurricane's pilot is killed before he can get aboard his aircraft. Johnny, with rudimentary pilot training, uh, grabs his flying gear, leaps aboard, takes off, dogfights with the German attackers. And then, with no ammunition and precious little fuel left, he makes for the Russian mainland. And that is how he comes upon Falcon Squadron, who have, who are also, in a way, a peculiar group of orphans. They've been abandoned by their high command and told to essentially sacrifice themselves to hold up the German advance in Russia. So here's Johnny, uh, this, this misfit, this maverick, doesn't fit in with his own people. Uh, he, uh, he happens upon Falcon Squadron, and, um, well, that's, that's how they see out the war together. Uh, as I say, Johnny starts flying with them and eventually ends up commanding them. But it's a clever way, I think, for for Tully to get Johnny and his trademark aircraft uh, to Russia, to the place where the story will play out. We just well, you mentioned his aircraft, you know, his signature aircraft, this Hurricane. Uh, I think it's a, is it a Mark One Hurricane? Um, yes. And, you know, you mentioned in your introduction to this book that it perhaps the fact that they continually are able to patch it up and put it back together again after it gets shot up so many times is a sort of comic book device. Very much so. But they were, I mean, you know, we think back about the Hurricane and the Spitfires, um, but all these aircraft of this period, they seem to me to have been incredibly frail things in a way. Um, I had Mike, Mike Collins on talking about his graphic novel Apollo, and mm-hmm. the frailty of the lunar lander in that. But the frailty of these World War II aircraft is astonishing to me that people just went up in them and somehow lived to tell the tale. Yeah, yeah. Very, 
very true by today's standards they are they are quite quite frail things uh, although even among the various generations of world war ii aircraft the hurricane is definitely much definitely at the lower end of the scale um it's pre-war it's it's a, a an aircraft put together from wood and canvas as well as metal, whereas one generation later, the Spitfire is all metal. The Hurricane is, it's slow. It's terribly slow. Uh, in the Johnny Red story I wrote, I, I had the I had Johnny's Hurricane re-engined as a Mark II just to bring it up to, to some kind of competitiveness. Um, but the Mark I that he flew off the, uh, the cam ship would have being about 60 or 70 miles an hour slower than the German fighters it would have been meeting. And in aerial combat, speed is everything, really. It, it simply means that if a German pilot got into a dogfight with a hurricane and didn't like the way things were going, he could fly away anytime he wanted. And that's a massive advantage. It means you dictate the terms of combat. So what, what Johnny had was this rather archaic, highly maneuverable, trademark aircraft whose time was really passing and yet it, it we came to identify it with him it was as i say his trademark it was um it was very much his calling card uh people you saw the people of leningrad look up and see this little british fighter and uh and shout oh that it's the hurricane of the red devil uh the red devil being their nickname for johnny redburn so again, it's it's kind of a clever it's kind of a clever move by Tully because he gives Johnny this um, this very recognisable aircraft that somehow fits his own character. It's uh, a little downbeat. It's um, people have written it off. They've said its time has passed. There's no use for it, uh, but it's going to surprise them, and that's what Johnny does too. Great stuff. You've mentioned Tom Tully obviously a few times, uh, the writer. Um, mm. I I believe probably the longest running writer on Roy of the Rovers, but we've covered him on this book club talking about Harlem Heroes, Janus Stark, right. uh, the Leopard from Lime Street. Um, how well does he handle this sort of, like this theatre of war, both the air warfare and of course uh, the unusual aspect of being in the Russian um, camps, as it were? Yeah, I think when it comes to the way he writes about combat, it, it's very much. Uh, of it, the strip is very much of its time. It, it it enjoys the hyperbole that a boys' comic strip of that era uh, al- almost always will. Um, that said, the mere fact that he was setting out to show us something of the Russian front and of the the Soviet experience in the Second World War uh, in a boys' comic in the seventies, I think, speaks volumes. Um, to be precise, I believe what happened was the editor, David Hunt, really did want to feature the Russians. He knew how important their contribution was, and he wanted to get something in about them. And I understand what happened was he said to Tom Tully, essentially, can you come up with this? Can you come up with something to, to, to fill this particular need? And Tully is supposed to have said, he thought about it for a minute and said, Johnny Red." So he came up with the name first or the title first. And from that, he got the name of the character, Johnny Redburn. And from that, he got he got the, the basics of the character. And from that, he got the entire setup for the strip. Johnny Red, of course, we associate Red with, uh, with, the, with Soviet communism, the red flag, the red flag of the working class and so on, the, the, the color, the symbol that came to... Uh, hold perhaps more meaning for Soviet Russia's uh, war effort than any other. Um, and from there, by putting together this this whole structure with, with Johnny, the Hurricane, Falcon Squadron, uh, fighting on the Russian front, where, of course, you have a degree of savagery that the Western Front never quite reaches, or sustained savagery, I should maybe say, um, he, gives the, he manages to create this whole thing Starting from starting from two words, Johnny Red. So it's it's just an idea that flickers through his mind, I suppose, and from it he's able to build this this quite massive and impressive structure. Um, so I, I would say hats off to him. It, it is important to remember that uh, I think you're of an age with me, mm. really. 
you know, in the 1970s and 80s, no one was really in any hurry to tell any any of our generation about the Russian contribution to World War II. They were they were just our enemies in the Cold War, and no one was in any rush to point out that the massive sacrifices that that, that the nation had made uh, in terms of in terms of blood uh, to defeat the Nazis. As you know, most comics of the time, and even many other battle strips, simply pushed the notion that it had been the British with a bit of help from the Americans, and some stuff happened in the East. And Johnny Red, I think, was the first one to sweep all that aside. Yeah, I mean, it is astonishing um, for that era to have a comic, as you say, that tackles the Russian front and the Russian uh, air force and their huge contribution and, as you say, their huge sacrifices. Now, Tom Tully does all this, of course, in the traditional three pages, weekly strip, um, Mm -hmm. Which, you know, as you say, for its time, it's very frenetic in a way. You have to have a lot of action uh, in those three pages and then move on some of the ongoing story plot a little bit at times, like characters like, you know, Kraskin and some of the other regulars. How well does Tully mm-hmm. handle that stuff in just three pages? I think, I think very well. Uh, the storytelling is quite frenetic. He does pack a lot in. Things move along at a cracking pace at this point in the story. I would say that if you look ahead, if you look beyond this book, because this is only the the first uh, the first collection, and it probably has, shall we say, eight months worth out of a total of maybe ten years. Mm. Later on, Tully starts to stretch things out a bit. Once once we we get into the John Cooper era. There are probably two more good years with John Cooper drawing the strip. And then Tully realizes that this thing, which is still pretty much the most successful and popular strip in battle has to be kept going. And he starts, and this is a bit of a Tom Tully trademark. He starts to stretch things out, maybe get about 12 episodes out of a story that maybe only deserve four things like that probably because he never expected in the first place that Johnny Red would last so long in the same way that John Wagner didn't think he'd be writing Judge Dredd for more than six months or a year. Mm. Strips weren't, weren't expected to last that long in those days. So when you had one of these comparative runaway successes, you, the writer, could find yourself up against it a bit. But that isn't a problem here because Tully still has so many different elements to play with. He's introducing new characters all the time, new aspects of war on the Russian front, Villains and heroes are coming and going. Uh, we move from, I think, Murmansk to Leningrad to Stalingrad, eventually back to Leningrad. He has so much he, uh, to draw on that his eventual problems are, are nowhere to be seen. At this point, the strip is still cooking, uh, still very much firing on all cylinders. And if I'm right in thinking, he sort of later on he'll send Johnny Red on sort of longer missions in different aircraft. I'm thinking of the flying gun one particularly. Mm. Um, but here he is doing the three pages and just like belting it along. Yeah, I suppose is it the longest running strip in battle or one of the longest running strips in battle? I think. I think it is by by quite a ways. I mean, it, Charlie's War. Even if you add on the sort of year and a half at the end that Pat Mills didn't write, I think is only seven or eight years, whereas this is a good 10. By the end of it, sadly, it's not what it was. That tendency I mentioned to he has to stretch things out really does make the strip start to suffer. You get more and more evil commissars. Uh, plot devices like Johnny's eyesight going or Johnny's memory disappearing and having to be recovered. These are used over and over again. Um, Cardly commanders appear by the time the strip ends. And it's a shame because Carlos Pino is doing some lovely artwork. Uh, But by the time it ends, it is is long past its best. Uh, Although so is battle, really. Uh, You're seeing... You're seeing the thing really live longer than it should, I'm sorry to say. But not here, though. This is, these are still very much the glory days. And you've mentioned Charlie's War. So let's turn to Joe Colquhoun, mm. the artist. Um, Charlie's War, obviously, one of the lofty pinnacles of British comics um, with Joe Colquhoun. But here he is doing uh, air combat. Um, what do you make of his artwork, his black and white artwork? <laughs> 
Well, I, I think it's absolutely tremendous. Uh, I mean, the guy is, as well as being an incredible draftsman and storyteller, he has a wonderful sense of character design. The people he comes up with are so so very human. They're also unforgettable. He he handles the aircraft very well. Um, he handles the, the very notion of aerial combat. One thing I've noticed in writing war stories uh, for comics is there are essentially two kinds of artists who are who are good at this stuff. There's the kind that can draw the aircraft almost blueprint perfect, but it'll sit on the page exactly like that. It'll sit there pretty much lifeless. And then there's the kind of artist who can get the aircraft exactly right, but he can also make it come alive. Um, people, I'm thinking here of most obviously Keith Burns, who I, I work with a lot, who, who did Johnny Red with me a few years ago, but also someone like Cam Kennedy, uh, who has a marvelous sense of movement to to all of his hardware, um, whether they whether you're talking about vehicles or aircraft, um, and that's the best kind of artist for a strip like this. Fortunately, Colhoun has that quality in spades. So does John Cooper when it's his turn. And, you know, we get very dynamic panel layouts. Um, Dogfights explode out of the page and cross over into other panels. Uh, It's all terrific stuff uh, from a master of the craft. Now, you know, you mentioned it would have been very difficult in the 70s to research some of this stuff, uh, a lot harder than it is now, I guess. Um, mm. They must have been making various trips to the library, I guess, Tom Tully and Joe Colhoun. You, you've, you've researched this period extensively. How accurate do you think they get the, uh, the various different aircraft involved and some of the sort of um, uh, the look and feel of the strip? Um, I think they, when, it, when it comes to technical details, they're pretty good. There's a few things they have to sort of fudge a little bit but for the most part Colhoun I think shows a great deal of conscience when it comes to getting this stuff exactly right I would say that he in terms of the research that was available he he would have done the very very best with what he had I can, I can even see in places where Tully has asked him to do things that don't quite make sense or create aircraft that or rather sorry draw aircraft that weren't quite what he wants them to be but Colhoun, being a bit of a trooper, pulls it off. Beyond that, I would go back to the point that uh, Tully is making a brave stab at uh, showing us the events and that took place. Uh, he, he, it is, though, very much against a background of what I called the hyperbole of boys' comics at the time. J- Johnny and the Falcons can do things that they would not have been able to do that said, we're still we're still a few steps away from um, the kind of stuff that went on in the the dafter end of Warlord and Victor and the picture libraries, where our hero can swat down a dozen Messerschmitts and come home without having drawn breath. So, where you might th- in those terms, you might think of it as a step along the way, uh, probably part of the overall battle ethos, uh, where things were. I, th- I think there was an editorial push for things to be not more realistic, which is always a dangerous word to chuck around when you talk about this stuff, but a little more believable than what had come before. It's some of the unique aspects of war on the Eastern Front where I think Tully really scores. I remember Pat Mills saying that he didn't like Johnny Red, the character, because he thought that the idea of a Brit leading the Russians being their squadron commander, was a bit patronizing. And that's a fair point. But I think it's very, very important that Johnny be an outsider, be a Westerner, be, in this case, a Brit, because he he represents our point of view. And we are being shown things that we've not been shown in a war comic before. Uh, we're being shown things like women and children being put into the front line. We're being shown the... Uh, wounded and injured people in hospitals being propped up at the windows and given rifles to hold off the advancing enemy to give the healthy troops time to get away before before everyone in the hospital is obliterated. We're being shown 
the incredible sacrifice in, in the defense of Leningrad and Stalingrad were being shown people hacking each other to death with shovels and beating each other's brains out with rocks. We're being shown dogs having bombs strapped to their backs and, and trained to run under tanks. My point here is that Johnny has our viewpoint. He has an outsider's viewpoint, not a Russian one. He's the guy that goes, you're really going to do this? You're really going to defend this city like this instead of just pulling back and saving lives? You're really going to to do this with the, ask these injured men these doomed men to do these things with their last breath. And the Russians, if they even if they even notice at all, because to them, of course this is natural, of course they're going to do it, they'll say, yes, we are. And I think it's I think that's what's so important about Johnny being, as I say, a Westerner, an outsider. He has our point of view and he has our horror and our incredulity at what it is we're being shown. And all these things were true. All these things happened. These were aspects of the war in the East that almost never occurred in the West. And maybe that, and this is a long way around to, to answering your question, maybe that is Tully's greatest triumph with this strip. It's showing an audience that would otherwise never have been exposed to them, to these things, these aspects of the war in the East. And the other thing that occurs to me, which I've mentioned before on this podcast, because I I particularly remember the sort of slightly triumphalist and hyperbolic uh, war stories from Victor comic. Mm. Um, it seems to me that the battle comics uh, that I've read for this podcast, they make... Because uh, Johnny Red is a sort of working class character. I think, is he from Liverpool? Is, it, is he? Yes, he is. Yeah, he's a working yeah. class Liverpudlian. And you mentioned that this these comics are about the extraordinary sort of ordinary people doing terrible and extraordinary things and making awful sacrifices stuck between an enemy and the authorities behind them. Does it, you know, does Johnny Red and some of the other strips in battle work so well because of that, that sort of like ordinary people stuck in the middle? I think very much so. And very, I think you have to, you have to once again credit Pat Mills uh, and John Wagner with the influence they already brought to, uh, they brought to battle from the beginning. Battle, of course, is the first of the three. It, it goes first. It kicks down the door. It's before action and it's before 2000 AD. And it's where that Mills and Wagner influence is first really, really felt. And yeah, that you see you see that particular ethos in uh, HMS Nightshade, which follows the four ordinary lads uh, as they join the crew. Uh, Darkie's mob, there's hardly an officer in sight. And uh, Darkie himself, although he's a captain, well, there's a story there. And of course, Charlie's War itself, which is really the purest expression of what Pat, I suppose, wanted to do with battle uh, and talk about ordinary people and not an officer class. In the case of Johnny Red, it's interesting because there's a couple of dots here that Tully never quite joins. Um, yes, Johnny Red is a working class lad from the back streets of Liverpool. And yes, uh, that chip on his shoulder is what led to the encounter that got him kicked out of the RAF. But he goes from class-conscious Britain to the workers' paradise of the Soviet Union, where, of course, ordinary people's lives are spelled, spent like pennies, where blood is almost meaningless. When, at certain points in the war, when an infantry unit, a Russian infantry unit, would attack, for instance, uh, there would only be enough rifles to equip the first, say, dozen men. So they would go first and the others would follow behind them. And when, then when they were cut down by German fire, the next guys were expected to keep up, to pick up those rifles and keep going. And if any of them got cold feet about this, there would be a Russian machine gun with an NKVD officer behind it uh, back at the start line, ready to persuade them they should, in fact, continue with the mission. So it was the probable or, or the likelihood uh, of death facing the Germans or the absolute certainty of it if you turned around uh, and went back to your own people. That's just one example. Um, but as I say, Tully never quite joins those dots. He never says Johnny went from a class-conscious society in the West to an allegedly classless society in the East. 
which was you know in the in that sense far far worse because so much more was asked and expected of ordinary people in Russia than it ever was in any of the Western democracies. It's, I mean, you know, it's an extraordinary strip. Um, if we mention, you've touched on them already, the rest of battle and other war stories from this era, um, HMS Nightshade will be coming up on the pod in the future with James P.T. Um, are there any other sort of like a particular favourites of yours from this period or ones that we should look out for? Well, there's Charlie's War, obviously. Uh, you've covered Nightshade and Darkies Mob. There's one I really like called The General Dies at Dawn by Alan Hebden and John Cooper. That's that's a little cracker. And then after that, there are some damn good ones like Fighting Man, a Vietnam strip. There's Death Squad. There's Invasion 1984 is a lot of fun. Uh, there's The Sarge by Jerry Finley Day and Mike Western, which is a, a wonderful strip. Um, things like Hellman. And uh, Crazy Keller was always a favourite of mine. It was, um, again, written by Alan Hebden with art by Eric Bradbury. And it was uh, Hebden's second take on the sort of roguish loner type that he began with Major Easy. This time you had an American character, um, and I thought, which, which I thought suited the idea a little better in that context. Hopefully most of these things are going to be reprinted Eventually, some of them, have, as you know, already are uh, and, and will be again. I mean, there's been two iterations of Charlie's War now, yeah. which is nice. And rightly so. It, it does stand head and shoulders above the rest. And I see, as we record, that they've just, I think, announced that the Sarge is coming out next year, um, yep. middle of next 2022. And, I mean, I should also mention on my shelf here, I can see two volumes um, of... Uh, battle stories from um, Garth Ennis Presents, um, which right. includes HMS Nightshade, and I think That's right. uh, Fighting Man is in there as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Those were uh, when Titan had the license to this material before Rebellion took it over. Uh, they, uh, they they made quite a lot of progress in getting the stuff into print. Um, Johnny Red and Charlie's were obviously, but they also did a bit of Rat Pack, a bit of Major Easy. Um, and they asked me about the, the Battle Classic series. You know, would I put my name on that? And I said, you know, if I can pick the, the material and make sure that it's it's presented as, as well as it can possibly be. So we did... Um, we did HMS Nightshade, we did The General Dies at Dawn, Fighting Man, and a weird little strip called War Dog, which is which is about a dog. Um, and we would have done more, but then, of course, um, Titan lost the license to Rebellion, uh, who will still hopefully get all this stuff you know, back in print and continue to, to reprint more of it. Uh, Titan also did Darkies Mob, which, of course, is was always quite a controversial strip. But one of the one of the casualties of the move, of course, was that we got four books of Johnny Red out uh, up to about, say, halfway through the, or maybe towards the end of the first year of John Cooper's run. Um, so we all told we probably got about roughly three years worth out. And then it was back to square one. But I'm, I'm told that Rebellion will eventually get round to Johnny Red again. Oh, right. So we may see, yes, we may get to see more volumes uh, collecting it in the future. Yeah, you're right. There's four Titan hardbacks, and I've got the first one. And uh, I think I put in our notes that the other three seem difficult to find, but they now seem to be back on Amazon and other sellers. I could find them again now, so I may have to get those as well. Mm. Garth, you mentioned, of course, you've written some Johnny Red with Keith Burns. Yeah. Uh, that was for yeah. Titan as well, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, round about the time that uh, Titan asked me about writing introductions for this stuff. They also asked me if I'd be interested in, well, writing new stories featuring any of the characters. And uh, Johnny Red was, for obvious reasons, top of the list. So uh, about four or five years ago, Keith and I did a, an eight-issue series, which is, uh, which, has been, uh, which is now, I believe, in print. And uh, that I think that went over reasonably well. It certainly... I, we would have done more, but of course, again, Rebellion picked up the license and that, that sort of put a halt on things for a while. I am happy to say that there's going to be a battle action special next summer, uh, oh. I think June. 
right. June or July. And uh, there'll be, uh, I've written a Johnny Red story for that and um, with, with Keith on the art. And I've also written uh, a story called uh, Nina Petrova and the Angels of Death. Uh, Nina Petrova was one of the, one of the, almost the most important character in the Johnny Red strip. She was a woman pilot who led a uh, night bomber squadron uh, called the Angels of Death. And uh, I really do think she's a very important character in British comics. Uh, she was really the first modern action heroine of her day. Um, she appeared before Judge Anderson, Judge Hershey, Venus Blue Jeans, Purity Brown, before any of them. And of course, she was based on real uh, real life characters, real people who actually existed and did these things. And uh, she was a... Uh, she was a very important character in the strip. She made multiple appearances. Uh, she was the absolute opposite of the kind of female character you had in comics at the time, who, when women showed up in boys' comics, they generally screamed a lot, got rescued, and then disappeared out of the strip, whereas Nina could hold her own. And uh, she and Johnny had all sorts of adventures together. They were shot down in Stalingrad. Um, they flew multiple missions against the Germans as uh, as the Russians started to to push back against the invaders. Uh, so it seemed only right that we should finally give her her own strip, her and her squadron of uh, woman aircrew. So it was kind of a pleasure to do that. Uh, we've got uh, Patrick Goddard is doing the art on that one. Fantastic. So that's Johnny Red with uh, Keith Burns again and uh, Nina Petrova with... Patrick Goddard in the Battle Action Special next summer. That's right. I believe June or July, something like that. Um, by that, of course, by the time your podcast goes out, everyone will know. I think the announcements in a couple of weeks. Yeah, fantastic. Something for us to look forward to. Um, so, if I turn you back to this first trade and to mm-hmm. the Joe Colhoun artwork, as you know, we play this game on the podcast where we imagine the artwork still survives and we could afford it. Um, mm-hmm. I've had a look around. There is some John Cooper, uh, Johnny Red pages um, displayed on various art forums, but I haven't seen any of Joe's pages. But if there was, um, is there a page or two you'd love to own yourself? Oh yeah, of course. Um, if we if we restrict it just to this volume, because there's you know there's some incredible Colquhoun stuff later on. But if we restrict it to this volume, I'm looking at the uh, the first ever dog fight uh, between Johnny Red and uh, his German opposite number, Erich von Jürgen, the commander of Eagle Squadron. Uh, and unfortunately, there are no page numbers. But if I hold it up, maybe you can see. Let's see. This one. Right. You see yeah, that? got it. Yeah. Um, it would be the second page of the episode. It's uh, it's got some good dogfight stuff. It's got von Jürgen turning the tables on Johnny just when he thought he was uh, just when he thought he was on top in the dogfight, uh, and it it ends in quite a tense moment with Johnny apparently at von Jürgen's mercy. Uh, and I think I'd like this one just because it's it's got some great aerial combat stuff with the Hurricane and the Messerschmitt. It's got Johnny flying suicidally low through a pine forest. Um, it really is. It, it really does have several moments of high drama, and I think, you know, it's as a as something that would stand for all the incredible aerial combat scenes in in Johnny Red. Uh, I think it's a damn good one. So I would go for that. Um, it would sit nicely alongside the John Cooper page I already have on my wall. <laughs> But which you can just about see over your shoulder, over my shoulder. Yeah. Yes. So our listeners can't, but I can see that you have got uh, some artwork on your wall behind us. Fantastic. So that's John Cooper page. Obviously, that's from later on. Um, yeah. That's that's an actual literal Grail page that you own. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I've got uh, I've got Johnny Red by Cooper. I've got. Um, I've got Nightshade by uh, Mike Western, and I've got a Colhoun Charlie's War as well. So a Colhoun Johnny Red would uh, 
really be the icing on the cake. <laughs> it would, it would indeed. Uh, but what a wonderful combination of pages you've got there. Um, mm. And if, I mean, are there any other John Cooper pages uh, outside of this volume that you'd be interested in, or shall we stick with the one on your wall? You know, there's some nice stuff later on that uh, we we didn't get around to collecting towards the end of thing, uh, the end of the the story, the Stalingrad storyline. Cooper does an excellent episode, actually, where the Falcons are trucked into Stalingrad, uh, really to sort of see what they've helped put a stop to, to see the German uh, Sixth Army being marched off into captivity. And it's quite a somber episode. There's no action in it at all. Um, again, you you get that you get that outsider's viewpoint with Johnny because he says, "Do we really have to do this? It feels like kicking a man when he's done." And one of the Falcons, I think Jacob says, maybe so, Johnny, but if this was your home city of Liverpool, you might want to crow a little. But all Johnny can see are these long columns of grey-clad, ragged German soldiers being marched off into captivity. And they he knows they're dead men and they know they're dead men. Um, you know, they're not most of them are not going to survive Russian captivity because it, it's really off to the gulags in Siberia. And so he's watching this army of the damned get marched away. And uh, Cooper really does make it an, an incredibly somber, very human, very dramatic moment. Of course, I can't tell you what issue it's in. It was never collected, but hopefully one day you'll be able to see it. Fantastic. Well, I shall hopefully post some of these images on all the various socials when this episode goes out so that we can uh, people can see what we're talking about. Uh, and yeah, we will give you a, um, a Joe Colhoun, Johnny Red page, uh, virtually at least, to add to the, uh, the, the real pages you've got on your wall there. Fantastic. So you, as we've said, it is Johnny Red, Falcon's First Flight. It's available in a Titan hardback, which you can still get for £15. And the other three volumes are out there as well. And also your volume with Keith Burns, um, Johnny Red, The Hurricane, is also available. Uh, I think that's £18 in paperback. Um, and I think that one, can you get that one digitally as well? That I do not know. Okay, uh, not to I, I would hope so. I shall put the links in the show notes uh, so you can track down these various volumes. Um, fantastic, Garth. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about Johnny Red. I mean, it's a terrific volume, and I'm just I'm stunned by how good the war stories were in battle and action um, and how different, perhaps, to sort of uh, my recollections uh, of war stories from this era. Garth... Just a moment to ask you about your own projects, because uh, not only have you written Johnny Red, you've written other um, stories about air warfare. I'm thinking particularly of the string bags, which you Mm -hmm. did with PJ Holden, which I'm reading at the moment, and is terrific. Talk about another set of frail aircraft um, pressed into service with extraordinary people flying them. And, of course, out of the blue with Keith Burns... Um, how was it writing those two? It it was highly enjoyable as ever, and it was great to do it with with people like Keith and PJ, whose enthusiasm matches my own. Obviously, it was reading battle and comics like battle in the first place that led me to an interest in military history, in into combat aviation specifically. That that comes most obviously from Johnny Red. And so there is a sense of things coming full circle where having discovered from the comics that in fact they were based on things that happened in real life that allowing for that hyperbole I talked about, real people did these real things, reading about the history, reading the memoirs of the pilots and their crew who took part. And then eventually, as I say, full circle, coming around to doing my own comic strips and writing my own war comics. Uh, there's there's something very it makes me kind of proud to have been able to do that to to have sort of inherited that tradition of battle um as i say it it was the one that went first and i do sometimes think it doesn't really get it's perhaps been forgotten it doesn't really get the credit it deserves action obviously lives largely on its reputation it was the bad boy it got banned 
Everyone knows what happened to action. 2008 is an institution battle, even though it boasts Charlie's War, which must be the best British comic strip of all time, uh, and all these other incredible strips by by people like Pat and John, uh, artists like Colhoun, Cooper, Western, and so on. It it doesn't seem to get the same kind of high profile as as the other two comics do when that period in British comics is considered. Um, I very much hope to be able to do something about that. Fantastic. Uh, and of course, as you say, we've got the battle special next summer to look forward to. Um, right. And you've got two, you've written two strips for that. Actually, I've written the entire thing. Oh, have you? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, we, we, uh, what, what I did when I pitched it to Rebellion was I suggested we make it as much like one of the old issues as possible. Um, battle action really resulted from action being cancelled and folded into battle. And for about three and a half years, battle saw print as battle action. And my contention is that it was during that period that all the best strips either continued their runs or began or were at least reprinted. There's a reprint of Darkies Mob in that era, uh, so I, I feel it's fair enough to throw that in. And I wanted to create that notion. You see it on the covers of those those old issues so many times, seven big stories inside. So we've got a, a really great cover by Andy Clark, which features all the characters, one of those montages that Battle Action was so good at. And then there's Johnny Red, and then there's the Sarge drawn by PJ Holden. Uh, we've got um, Crazy Keller, art by Chris Burnham, uh, Dredger, John Higgins, Hellman, Mike Dory, Kids Rule OK, I'm delighted to say, drawn by Kevin O'Neill. And the last one, uh, closing out the special, is Nina Petrova and the Angels of Death, drawn by Patrick Goddard. So it's as really as good a tribute to the old battle action days as I can possibly manage. That sounds astonishing. <laughs> Uh, so excited I'm, I'm beside myself to see that one now uh well that's something really to look forward to in the middle of next year um while we mentioned pj holden he's recently shared a couple of teaser images from a strip mm. called the lion and the eagle which you're working yeah. i think you're working on that as well is that right that's right i, I wrote that and pj's about three quarters of the way through uh that's the strip about the war in burma so it's darkies mob territory but it's um, it's it's much less of an adventure strip and more of a straight uh, war story. It's about the Chindits, who were a large British special force who were dropped behind enemy lines uh, in early 1944, where they were really supposed to cause as much trouble uh, uh, behind the Japanese lines as possible. Uh, what happened instead was the whole thing bogged down in the worst possible way, they were cut off and surrounded and ended up fighting uh, a number of extremely vicious uh, rear guard actions. Uh, and things got bad very fast. And uh, it's it's a part of the war, the war in the East, I think in particular, uh, that I've always been fascinated by, but that doesn't really get a fair shake when it comes, when you place it alongside uh, the war in the West against the Germans. So just as originally the Russian contribution to the defeat of the Nazis was overshadowed by uh, what was perceived as the British and American contribution. Uh, that in turn, uh, through the uh, the war against the Japanese, very much into the shadows. I think the men who fought there referred them to themselves as the Forgotten Army. Uh, but it was an, an incredibly dynamic and uh, very... Um, very vicious uh, kind of warfare. It was jungle warfare at its nastiest. And uh, there was no quarter asked or given. There was none of the occasionally civilized moments of the war between the British and the Germans or the, or the Germans and the Americans. Uh, it was, uh, and I suppose Darkies Mob catches this to an extent, it, it was out and out total war with no prisoners being taken no chances being given, no mercy, and uh, so it's uh, it's a part of it's a 
a time during the war, a part of the war that I've always wanted to write about, and uh, the lion and the eagle is the result. And uh, who who is that for? Which company will be publishing it, and when will it? When can we expect it? Do you know? Um, that will be aftershock, and I believe it begins in February or March, and it will be four episodes. Um, they have this new format. I, I think they've been trying out. It's, um, I believe. 40 pages per issue, uh, oversized uh, format, sort of actually quite close to uh, the old 2000 AD or battle page dimensions. Uh, so it should be quite an impressive volume on the shelves. Something else to look forward to. Um, you sound incredibly busy as ever, Garth. Anything else that you can share with us at the moment? Or that sounds plenty to be going on with. <laughs> Uh, let's see. I think they've announced Talk the Slayer. Yes, they have. Yes. So that'll be starting soon. Um, there's another series of Jimmy's Bastards from Aftershock. There's another Punisher book on the way. Jason Burroughs is drawing that now. And beyond that, uh, there's I can't I can't give you too many details, but there will be a new horror book towards the end of next year um, from uh, Upshot the artists, writers and artisans company. Excellent stuff. And Hawk the Slayer, I think we've seen already uh, some Henry Flint images from that, haven't we? Yeah, uh, and uh, also some of Greg Staples' lovely covers. It, it's yes. a tremendous looking book. It really, really is. Garth, thank you so much for giving up your time this evening uh, for an episode that will be out in early January. Um, it's been a great pleasure talking about Johnny Red and all of Battle with you. Um, I'm very, very grateful for your time. Pleasure, Eamon. Thanks very much. Cheers. And thank you to Paul for setting us up with this interview. Paul will be along, hopefully, in a couple of weeks himself with Hellman of Hammer Force. And thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. As ever, find all the links, including links to all of Garth's projects, at megacitybookclub.com. Follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Spotify, and the 2080 forums. Or email me, mcbcpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's a goodbye from me and... Goodbye from me. Cheers. Cheers.